Sayadaw Tejaniya says that we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom as a marathon and not a sprint. And I think he is addressing the nature of practice in that a lot of us hear of meditation or spiritual practice and when we begin we, we, we often have a lot of enthusiasm, interest and sometimes we just apply our effort a little willy-nilly or a little too strongly applying some technique in order to get some special effects some spiritual goal whatever, whatever we think it is spiritual powers or insight or awakening or something. And inevitably for all of us, as we try that for a while, we come to realize that that's not going to happen and maybe not the most effective way to, to practice. And we settle into a more balanced way of practice and mature more mature practice after a few retreats or a decade or two or three uh, is quite different where there's some recognition of the uh, nature of the spiritual journey and some trust in the unfolding of wisdom and it's not so much a goal-oriented let me achieve this as quick as possible endeavor, so much as it is a commitment to a lifestyle in the direction of awakening. So tonight I want to speak about awareness as a lifestyle. And the way I want to, the format or the outline I want to use is to talk about what are called the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties. Because these are the five factors of mind which, as developed, guide the unfolding of our practice and the development of wisdom. And they are the five factors that are most responsible for that are most necessary to keep in balance in order to move along the spiritual journey. And I'll just mention them quickly and then I want to speak about each one of them. The first is sada, which is usually translated as faith, but it really means the confidence acquired through one's own experience and understanding. The second is virya, which means energy or effort, but is most skillfully applied as perseverance. The third is sati, a mental factor called mindfulness, which has the function of remembering and observing. Samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration, means stability of mind. And that stability of mind is subjectively experienced differently for a tranquility practice as it is or than it is for vipassana or an insight practice. And then panya, wisdom, the understanding that grows through insight and through one's own experience of the nature of reality and understanding it. Now the interesting relationship between these five mental factors is that, first of all, it is, while we often talk of them as if they were nouns, they operate in practice as verbs. So we're faithing, we're energizing, we're observing, we're stabilizing, and we're understanding more than the having or grasping or or having something called 
faith, concentration, mindfulness, energy, whatever. And in the case of these five, the way they work is that the first, faith, is a primary cause for the arising of the second, energy, or effort. Energy and effort is the primary cause and condition for the arising of the third, which is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the primary cause and condition for the arising of stability of mind, samadhi, and samadhi is the primary cause and condition for the arising of wisdom or understanding. So there is a cause-effect or a causal relationship among these five. And let me just say that as they... As we progress in practice, or as the momentum of practice increases, they have a cyclic, sequential effect upon one another. So that with initial faith, we make initial energy, awareness, stability of mind and understanding. But that understanding that emerges in the first freshness of you know, insight or understanding, that understanding supports greater faith and confidence. And with the greater faith and confidence, we make additional effort or apply additional energy, more, more mindfulness, more stability or a more enduring stability of mind. And then again, when the mind is collected and stable, it sees more details of the nature of reality and we have more understanding. That greater understanding again fuels or supports greater faith and confidence. And in this way, there is a gradual, cyclic, causal relationship from the very beginning of practice to the maturing of awareness and understanding and the unfolding of understanding in our life. The way I'm going to talk about awareness is as the activity of these five factors when aroused, developed, mature, and balanced. Usually in retreat like this we use mindfulness and awareness synonymously, but in this case tonight I want to talk about mindfulness as one factor or one function that's performed by the mind in the activity of awareness. So the first factor, mental factor, or the first activity of mind to initiate some um, interest in the spiritual life, spiritual practice, is some kind of faith. Often it's initially accessed through reading, something or hearing something or maybe a spontaneous experience of some deep experience of reality or oneself that really awakens this uh, interest and uh, clearly touches the heart in a way that mm, realigns the heart with a spiritual objective maybe clarifies one's aspiration, initiates a, a greater interest and movement towards a spiritual practice. When I was about 25 or 26, I guess, I can't remember, um, I was living in a commune in Maine, and we were not into spiritual practices. I did not know anyone who was a meditator, or Buddhist, and had no interest in, and ne never gave it a thought. We were into the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, <laughs> and the sacrament that made them so special. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was our lifestyle. And somehow, one of the women on the, on the commune, where we live, um, got this book called Beginning to See, a little book of one-liners about the benefit and power of mindfulness. 
in the back of which was an address to write for information. She wrote, got the information, and was told that, oh, there was a retreat going on now, or right then, uh, which was only uh, you know an hour and a half drive from where we lived in Maine. So it was, it was the first three-month retreat that Jack Joseph Sharon and, other, and another, another fellow taught, the last two weeks of which was going to be a two-week introduction. So we said, well, let's go. You know, or she said, I'm going to go. And I thought she said something like, I'm going on a holiday. <laughs> not, that, not that I was into resorts or anything, but it seemed something like that. We're going down to the coast of Maine. We're going to stay in a big da-da-da. Okay, it's kind of like a holiday. So we got there, and you've got to remember that there was already 50 or 60 people there that had been there two and a half months of the three-month retreat, they're walking around. It's, it's winter. It's December 1st or something, the day after we went to Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review concert. <laughs> okay. We were, we were ready. So we get to the monastery. It's an old Catholic monastery, and we walk in, and everybody's walking around, wrapped up in blankets, looking at the floor, acting like a barely moving corpse. <laughs> now remember, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't know anything about mindfulness. I didn't, wasn't interested. I thought I came to a resort. <laughs> we walked in the door, and on the left was the dining room. Nobody in there. On the right was two doors with a schedule posted on the door. We looked inside the door. Everybody's sitting in there like still statues back to us. So I looked at the schedule. So wake up at four, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, <laughs> tea, sit, 7.30, talk, 8.30, sit, walk. And I looked at my friend and I said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk. <laughs> <laughs> what they really meant was an hour a day to listen. So, I slept through the opening um, gathering of those who'd come for the two weeks and stumbled into the first evening's Dhamma talk and began my spiritual journey. I sat way up back. I was totally self-conscious and thought I was totally out of place and, and had some doubts whether I belonged there at all. sat way up back. I leaned against the piano the whole two weeks. It was, to say the least, excruciating. It was excruciating physically. It was mentally just challenging. Emotionally, well, I wasn't very emotional. I didn't, I didn't have any emotions. <laughs> they were pretty suppressed. But anyway, at the end of two weeks, kind of come stumbling out, got in the car, drove back to the commune. Nothing special happened to me during that whole retreat. I had one good sitting. But, and I went to the teacher and explained how great it was, and he says, <clears throat> what goes up must come down. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, I drove back to the commune, drove back to the commune, and, you know, kind of got out and met everybody and just kind of like saw that everything was just as we'd left it. Everybody was there doing the same old thing, and yet... We were totally different. It's like nothing was the same. The activity was the same. The people were the same. The buildings were the same. But our, our minds, our hearts were totally different. In a total different place with a totally different understanding. And that was the beginning of our end of our participation in the commune. And the beginning of our journey into the Dharma. And I thought, I mean, here I am 40 years later, enticing you into the same cauldron of chaos. Anyway, good luck. And I, you know, for a long time I wondered, what happened? What, what happened at that retreat that I got so, well, so turned around in my life, gave up the drugs, gave up the commune, got my act together in the sense of, just sitting for years of retreats, 
uh, and, go, and volunteering at the meditation center as soon as because it, it opened soon after we did our first retreat and just devoting my life really to realizing, practicing and sharing the Dhamma. I mean it was my life was going nowhere. I was drifting badly and totally dissipated with no no direction, no known direction to life. And yet, coming out of that retreat, I knew where I was going. I had some kind of personal experience that just clarified for me what was of value in this life. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the Dharma. It wasn't that I had any knowledge. I, mean, I didn't read any books. I, I just listened to the Dharma talks of a retreat and barely understood them. Well, after that retreat, right, a year and a half later, I went on staff at the meditation center. It opened. And the first day of work there, I was up in the attic, insulating the attic of a dormitory with Rodney Smith. He was on staff then. We were ha- now, I'd done one retreat, and we were having a discussion about Nibbana. <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> thinking we knew something. Anyway, and I, he reminded me several years later that I exclaimed to him with utter sincerity and absolute confident faith, I have no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. <laughs> I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I didn't know what was involved, but I knew that this practice was going to do it for me. That's what faith is. It's like, okay, you get this assurance based on some personal experience, not necessarily dependent on knowledge. It's not hope. It's not make-believe. It's, it's real. It's, it's in your heart. You didn't put it there. You don't know how it got there, but it's not leaving. And it has this power of reorienting your life, chain, grabbing your life and pointing it in a direction that... You go. They say that this kind of faith, or sadha, faith, clarifies one's spiritual objective. Not that you have to really know what it is, but there's a sense in yourself of what the whole spiritual life is. It's not about a career. It's not about family. It's not about your politics. It's about your inner life. And this practice really grabs your atten- grabs the attention of your inner life. It's all about your inner life. Traditionally, they say that faith overcomes doubt, or you put aside doubt when you have faith. And traditionally, the doubt is about the teacher, the teachings, whether they're effective, whether they actually do what they say, whether you can do it yourself, and in the course of practice, of course, these things, you know, you do, you do sometimes meet teachers that you wonder, or you find yourself in a place in practice where you question whether you have the capacity or capability or whatever to kind of navigate. But these are, these are the usual or the familiar doubts that everyone will face at some point on their practice. In the, in the journey. But if you borrow confidence from others who are further along in the path or teachers, you can navigate through doubt and in time, actually from your own experience, come to a more stable confidence. And later in practice, with a lot of momentum and insight, you can really realize an unshakable faith. But once you have this clarity of direction in life and an aspiration to kind of pursue it or uh, do what you can to uh, realize it, then you look around like, well, what have I got to do? And you're you're willing to do whatever it takes or at least start to. And that's where the second factor of 
energy or effort uh, comes into play. Because with effort, we, you know, you either read, you acquire knowledge, you acquire experience, you pursue that which you feel is most necessary at the time to continue your journey. However, we can have faith and not feel moved to actually do anything about it. And they say that the proximate cause for the arising of energy is having a sense of urgency. Like, why bother? It's like, you know, I was young at the time, 25, 26. It's like, got the rest of my life, well, except for the first 25 years ahead of me. And it, when you're 25, it looks like you got a long time. And, of course, we never know, but what's, what's the urgency? You know, why, why, well, we put it off for a week, a year, you know, a couple of years. Maybe I better get my career together. Maybe I better start my family, get that over with, and get into, then get into practice. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that are competing for our attention. Not that, the, not that there's any one answer for anybody, but there's a lot to be done as an early adult or a young adult in getting your life headed off in the direction that you're going to go. And so this, this sense of urgency in these teachings is really about arousing not just a sense of urgency and a panic and anxiety about what am I doing and I, and I want to get that spiritual goal, whatever it is. It's not that. It's, it's more like, you know, maybe you had a pet, um, maybe you had a friend, maybe someone in your family, when they die, and you feel, you really feel what that means. It's like, and I don't mean you just get sad, but I mean you realize, wow, that happens, and it, hap it will happen to me. It brings a sense of looking at your own life like, what am I doing here? Is, is, am, I, am I spending my time wisely? Am I just wasting time? Am I just acting foolish? I mean, what is it that we're here as a human being on the face of the earth at this time and age? What are we here to do? And, and, and it's often not that clear, but there's a feeling, a sense of, you know, doing something more than just getting to the weekend to have some fun, and you feel, you feel drawn, you feel moved. And that's, that's really the, the, the kick in the pants, so to speak, to get with to get on the retreat, to get the book, to go to the class, to do whatever it is that's going to further your um, commitment, understanding, and, and really movement along the spiritual path. This doesn't happen only once. It happens many times in the course of our journey. Because, you know, initially there's something that moves us and we feel motivated and we get into practice at some level of commitment. And, you know, it, like anything else, we, we, we might lose faith or we, we become complacent or we just kind of uh, slacken off and then we get stuck again in the habits of the mind that aren't headed towards a spiritual realization. And we need another kind of wake-up call. And for me, I, I had been... Uh, doing retreats for about eight years and practicing at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And I'd been on staff there for many years and the board of directors and the executive director for a while. And I just really had devoted my life there for the first, for about, yeah, six or seven years. And I was doing, I was back one winter just doing my, you know, two-week self-retreat over the middle of the winter during my birthday week. And... I'd done it every year for years, and I had my own business, and I was in a stable relationship, and 
life was going on at 35, 34, 35, and just went back for another retreat. Well, about the third or fourth day in the retreat, I was having a hard, I was having a hard time on the retreat. It was just really uncomfortable and, you know, it wasn't, I didn't settle in too good. And I had this vision. It wasn't a dream and it wasn't, I wasn't asleep and it wasn't kind of a fantasy. It was like, it was like a visitation almost. And I saw this shrouded figure that looked like a skeleton. Of course, I was into the Grateful Dead, I mean. <laughs> but, and this, this being conveyed to me the fact that the moment of death is the most important moment of your life. Well, without thinking about what that meant or what that was all about, I got it. It's like, what am I doing to prepare for the end of life? And I didn't have to think about it for a split second, but I decided then that I really didn't know the value or didn't know the purpose or hadn't really realized for myself the benefit of this practice. I'd been doing eight years of retreats and in all honesty, I wasn't that good a yogi. I was pretty bad. I mean, I was effortful, and I liked just sitting, but I had a lot of repair work to do. I wasn't living a clean life, and I had to clean up my sila, and I had to stop doing the drugs, and I had to kind of take care of some f dysfunctional family stuff, and I had to get a handle on some anger, and, you know, there's, just, there's a lot of repair work that happens sitting on the cushion, just kind of coming to accept, you know what? This is it. This is the personality, and this is the dark side of the personality, and you got to work with it. Okay, well, after eight years, I guess I'd done enough, and I just said, I'm ordaining. I'm, I am going to Burma, and I'm going to ordain, because I, I want to practice till I don't want to practice anymore, until I really know what this practice is all about. I'd seen a monk about six years before then, first monk that came to America, Buddhist monk from Burma, I'd seen him, and when I saw him, I again was really moved, I, I was just so inspired by the story of his life, and his demeanor, and without knowing, again, anything about what, what, what being a monk's about, but somehow I, I really wanted to find out. I wanted what he had. I wanted that level of commitment or integrity or wisdom without knowing really what it was, but I wanted it. I could see that there was something there that was a value. And it, it inspired me for six years. I, the conditions did, at the time did not support me becoming a monk. I didn't have my act together. I didn't have any money. I didn't have, I just didn't have any wisdom. I, didn't, I had a lot of fear about traveling to Asia. It just wasn't happening. But after six years, conditions were supportive. Off I went. And that was another whole sense of urgency to what is, what's this practice all about? I re I've got the basics down, I know the techniques, but I haven't realized it yet, I haven't tasted for myself. And went off to Burma. I had no idea what was going to be required. You know, and as Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, if we knew what was going to be involved in this journey of awakening, it would be better not to start. But since we have started, there's no turning back, and we better get to the end. So, that's what this sense of urgency that arises at different times in our life, in different ways, different in our practice, moves us off of whatever sense of complacency or contentment, not contentment, but complacency or... Uh, laziness that has settled into our practice. And it's lights a fire under our butt. One of the ingredients for not just ordaining or even just coming to a retreat, but in, in our spiritual life altogether is we just need to simplify. 
It's just not possible to do everything that's offered in life and develop a spiritual life. There's just not enough time, there's not enough energy, and they go in different directions. And it really is a requirement, I think, for each one of us to, to do an inventory of the addicts of our life and check out what no longer serves our highest aspiration. What behaviors or misbehaviors, what friends, what stuff, what beliefs, what emotions no longer serve our aspiration and find a way to simplify our life without them. Now that, that can take most of our life, of course. But it's something that we need to keep doing. And that kind of effort is not the effort to acquire anything, but it's the effort to let go of what is no longer useful. No one succeeds without effort. You can't bake bread if you don't make effort. Ramana Mahashi didn't say that, but he said, no one succeeds without effort. (laughs) Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Sayadu Tejaniya says the same thing. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Another one of my spiritual teachers... uh, back in the beginning there, was Carlos Castaneda. Don Juan's teachings are really good dharma, in case you haven't noticed. Don Juan, Carlos writes, Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Okay. So with a little faith, a little confidence, some experience that, that sets us in the direction of our spiritual journey, and with making an initial or continuing effort, energy, in this practice, we become more mindful. More mindful, or we arouse this mental factor of mindfulness, sati, which means to remember. It's not to remember your spiritual aspiration, it's to remember the present moment. I had a good lesson in this. After I'd been practicing for six, seven or eight years, uh, Saido Upandito came to America for the first time and he offered a three-month retreat for 20 people at Meditation Center in Massachusetts. All 20, nine, I should say, 19 of them were either teachers or trainees. And since I had been the executive director and there forever, I begged and cajoled my way into it also. Unfortunately, no one told him that I wasn't a teacher. He found out pretty quick. But (laughs) nevertheless, I was reporting to him every day. And it was tough. I mean, some of you have heard stories about Upandi. He's really demanding. He's very severe. He's very stern. It's just you... His teaching is, please try harder. No matter what you're reporting or what you're doing, please try harder. Anyway, I was trying... Too hard, but nevertheless, I was standing in the hallway waiting for an interview, and he was down at the hallway, and the door is open, and the person in front of me was a young woman who was quite new to practice, but she was having a fantastic retreat. She had great mindfulness, and just really clear about her experience and understanding, and just really on fire. 
And I could hear her talking to, giving her report that day, and she was telling Upandita, wow, my life was so clear, I can remember my past lives, and I was doing this and doing that, and da 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 you know, and I'm, I'm in the hallway saying, past lives, where's the breath? You know. <laughs> so she came out, just kind of floating down the hallway, and I went, <laughs> I kind of went in, you know, did my bows, and I kind of was just so upset, I just blurted out to Upandita, I said, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? <laughs> and he looks at me calmly and said, No. Remembering this life. That's it. That's what mindfulness is. Remembering this moment of life. We try anything, you know, except what's simple first. And that's what the function of sati is, is to not forget, to remember. If there's someone telling you, moment to moment, pay attention, remember, notice this, notice that, you don't have to remember, you're being reminded. But we don't have that luxury or pestering. We have to internalize that instruction ourselves and prompt ourselves to remember. And that's hard. It's really hard. That is the challenge of the spiritual journey, is prompting ourselves to remember to pay attention. Once we remember, then it is the, the manifestation of sati to observe. Mindfulness observes the moment after it remembers to pay attention. So, as a factor of mind, mindfulness has this function and manifestation. But as an activity of mind, it is being aware. One quality, or one, one thing to know about this factor, mindfulness, because it is the primary wholesome factor in the spiritual journey, it is accompanied by many other wholesome mental factors, so that any time there is remembering and observing, there is also some amount of faith some amount of tranquility, some amount of loving-kindness, some amount of equanimity, some amount of uh, concentration, some, of course, some, some amount of energy. But there's also a whole package of qualities of mind that get developed with the momentum of mindfulness. They, uh, they include lightness of mind, pliancy of mind, adaptability of mind, so that mindfulness can accommodate any experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, subtle, gross, physical, mental, ethereal, whatever. The mind is so pliable and so adaptable. It's like clay. You know, you take hard, cold, molding clay and it just crumbles. And the mind that is not worked over with mindfulness is pretty brittle. It's pretty reactive, it's pretty snappish. And yet when you work the mind, just like when you work clay, you kind of knead it and you move it and you heat it up and you stretch it and you push it and poke it and, you know, it gets soft, it gets pliable. It can take any shape, clay. So to the mind, when it's worked with, with mindfulness, it becomes very adaptable to any situation. It becomes pliable to any size, shape, color, texture, whatever your experience is, mindfulness can accommodate it. There's one other factor that comes with this plasticity of mind. That's really what we're talking about, the plasticity of the mind. It's called ujukata. And ujukata means straightness of mind. Experientially, it means the inability to deceive yourself anymore. This is where we start telling ourselves the truth. This is how mindfulness doesn't lie. 
Mindfulness never deceives you. It will show you the truth whether you're ready, whether you can handle it or not. Well, we have constructed our lives oh, through conditioning to avoid, deny, minimize, obscure what is painful, unpleasant, not in alignment with who we think we are or how we think we are, and so we've lived in delusion. Whatever we've lived through, we have our story about it that always makes us look good, or at least emphasizes a sense of self. <laughs> Alexis was talking the other night about the black hole of self. It is when, this, when the idea of yourself gets developed, it sucks in everything. Everything is about me. You know, it's all about me. The mind, everything that happens out there, in here, it's all about me. That's the power of delusion. Okay. This straightness of mind is what is the truth teller in our practice. It will tell you whether you are seeing things as they are or spinning your story one way or another. Okay. So I was in Burma. I was practicing. I had been practicing for a year or two in the monastery. I remember I was walking in the back alley of the dormitory where I lived, this little single-floor dormitory. I was walking in the back alley. It was in the afternoon, and I was just doing my walking practice. And for the first time in my life, I saw this, or I heard this little voice in my mind that said, oh, poor me, blah, 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 fill in the blank. Oh, poor me, I can't do this practice. Oh, poor me, I'm not very good at this. Oh, poor me, this, that, the other thing. And with all kinds of explanations. I'm too old, I started too late, I'm too stupid, I did too many drugs, I didn't do enough drugs. But I, I mean, there were all kinds of why I was not doing what I wanted or as well as I could. Well, luckily, my mindfulness was really sharp. And it saw this voice for the first time, and I realized, wow, I've never seen that before. I've never felt, oh, poor me. I've always had an arrogant self-confidence. <laughs> Confidence that's sometimes arrogant. And just never felt, never realized, never saw it. And yet, once I saw it, I realized, wow, this has been around just under the radar in my life from the very beginning. It has undermined everything I, not everything, but a lot of what I've really tried to do with my life. Because somewhere that little voice grabbed my energy and took it in the wrong direction. Well, I got so fierce. I was so, like, surprised first, but so resolute is the word, that I said, I am never going to let that thing go by again without seeing it. And I, I really made it a prime suspect in, in whenever I felt bad about practice, whenever I thought I wasn't doing well, or had some difficulty, or whatever, whenever I thought practice was struggling with practice, whenever I was struggling, didn't think it was going well, I always looked for this voice. Oh, boy, me, I can't do it. And, of course, I saw it a lot. But I saw it, well, not every time, but I saw it a lot. And for, the, for a period of time, you know, weeks, maybe a couple of months, every time it arose, I was right on it. And at some point, it, didn't, it stopped arising. It just, it just didn't even try to get up, try to get into my mind, because I was, I was on it. And in all honesty... I have to say, I've never seen it since. That's not to say that I haven't had troubles and difficulties and challenges and you know, all that stuff, but I don't fall into, oh, poor me, without seeing it. And of course, as soon as you see it, then you're not in it. But I could see that mindfulness doesn't lie. It shows you what you've never been able to see about yourself. And that's where, that's the real uncovering process. That is the realizing process.
of my interest. With this remembering and with this continuity of observing, the torments of the mind just don't have an opportunity to get in because mindfulness as a function of remembering and observing as, a, as, a, as an activity of mind is so continuous when, you, when we're making that kind of effort is so continuous that the torments cannot get in the mind. When that happens, the mind becomes very stable. Stable in the sense of it remains or it it arises in each moment with a pure mind that's not contaminated, it's not diluted, it's not confused, it's not attached and not averse. It sees things as they are. Mindfulness. And this stability of mind is initially apparent when we use a primary object, a single object. So when we're using the breath, for example, and we're just able to just stay with the breath quite continuously for a period of time, and it may be a minute, it may be five minutes, it may be 30 minutes, you, you really feel the stability of the mind. You see the continuity of the mind. You recognize that the mind is being very continuous. It's very stable, and the body feels very stable too. It's like it just... You know, you take a bag of rice and you just kind of toss it on the counter of the kitchen. It doesn't bounce, it doesn't wiggle, it doesn't jiggle, it doesn't do anything, it goes clunk and lands there. That's what stable mind feels like in the body. The, mind, the body sits there and it doesn't move. It doesn't wiggle, it doesn't shake, it doesn't tremble, it doesn't do anything. It's just stable. Huh. And the mind is stable on the object in every moment. You're not chasing after. The mind's not, not, the mind's not wandering and thinking. It's not chasing after anything. It's not being kind of wobbly like, eh, I don't know if I want to experience this. It's like, it's on it. This is samadhi. There's a sense of seclusion. It's like the mind is secluded from agitation, torments, vibration, thing, everything. Nothing is shakes or rattles the mind when when it is secluded in samadhi. So initially we start with a single object like the breath or a sound or mantra, whatever, whatever your concentration object is or whatever your meditation object is. But we mistakenly believe it is the continuity of the object that develops the samadhi. But in fact, it is the continuity of the mindfulness that develops the samadhi. So in Vipassana practice, insight practice that we're doing here, we're not paying attention to just a single object like the breath. We may start with the breath, use it at the beginning of every sitting or for the first few days of retreat, but gradually, mindfulness is going to notice more. It's going to notice other sensations, thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, plans, External, internal, subtle, gross, physical, mental, emotional. It's going to notice everything. And because we're not just hanging on to a single object, subjectively it feels like, God, the mind is just racing. It's not racing by thinking. It's just racing. We should say the objects are racing through the mind. But the mind sees them all. And the observing of them is steady from moment to moment. So while subjectively we may feel like, wow, you know the uh, scene at the end of 2001? You know, whether was it? that was the movie, yeah, 2001, and you're headed out, you're headed out of the cosmos, and everything is just flying by you, you know, and you're just kind of like, wow. <laughs> That's what it's like, good Vipassana, wow. <laughs> you know, you're not moving. You're not moving, but everything is going through, going by. It's like that. If you try to keep up with the objects, 
notice them all, name them all, relate to them all, you'll, 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 you'll be in a frenzy. But if you stay with the awareness that is arising in each moment, you feel perfectly calm in the middle of a storm. That's the samadhi of Vipassana practice. The mind is stable. The mind is stable. The objects are not. That's the difference between concentration practice, which leads to tranquility and calmness and pleasantness, and Vipassana, which leads to insight and understanding. So we don't want to mistake the samadhi of a single object for the samadhi of Vipassana. Because the samadhi of Vipassana is stability of observing, meaning it recurs every moment. It's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. It sees changing objects effortlessly. It doesn't lie, remember? Mindfulness doesn't lie. It sees what is apparent. <clears throat> now what happens? Oh, let me just say. The proximate cause for the arising of samadhi is not focusing. It's not grim, grit your teeth, grab that object, stay with it. The proximate cause of samadhi is happy comfort of mind and body. Which means relax. How do you how do you make the mind and body happy? The body, you don't a tense body is not happy. So relax. How do you make the mind happy? Let go. Let go. If you're trying to force the mind or you're struggling with the mind to make it happen or to be mindful or get with the object or get away from this object, the mind is struggling. That's not a happy mind. That mind is tense, tight. If the mind has any agenda, any program in the practice other than observe the present moment, it's, it's tight. It's grabbed onto something. It's grabbed onto the idea of what it wants to be doing. And it's not with the object that arises in the moment. So relax that grip of the mind. Let the mind be happy. Noticing whatever appears. Let the body be relaxed. That is the proximate cause for the arising of this continuity and stability of mind. This concentrated mind, or this stable mind, develops from the continuity of mindfulness, not from the size of the object. Now, what do we do with this stable mind? We see the objects clearly. And when you see objects clearly, you understand them. So it's like looking at something up close, personal, intimately, even under a magnifying lens or a microscope, and really seeing more detail more facets of what it is that's being observed. And even though Vipassana objects are flying by dozens in a moment, every moment, the mind sees them all. It sees the process that's happening. It understands it because it sees, it has observed long enough to really understand the nature of the mind, the function of the mind, the unfolding of the mind, let alone the objects the process that's happening. Well, this leads to deep understanding not only of our personality, not only of our likes and dislikes, not only of our um, aspiration, our fears, our hindrances, all that stuff. It leads to understanding the nature of reality. And there's a whole series of insights. I'll talk about them later, another, another evening. But there's a whole series of insights that, lead, that come from this kind of observation, this very intimate, ongoing, recurring observation of objects and the process of mind. And with that knowledge, 
we inevitably learn how to let go of that which causes suffering. To let go of the wrong understandings. Remember I talked about right view, wrong view, <coughs> skillful view or unskillful view. If we don't understand things correctly, if we understand them from, if we misunderstand them from some spin, we're going to suffer. But if we understand them correctly without spin, then we don't suffer. It is the function of wisdom to, un to see how to understand things in the way that we don't suffer. And we can only do that when the mind is stable, not shaking, not wobbling, not anxious, anxious not fretting, not stewing. The mind is just stably seeing, oh, this is the way things are. And with that, then, we really understand how not to be out of alignment with the way things are. It's when we're out of alignment with the truth that we suffer. It causes tension in the mind, in the body, in our relationships. But when we're aligned with the way things are, because we see, oh, this is the way things are, let me come into alignment with that. Our understanding is correct or it's skillful. Then we don't suffer. This is, this is the development of wisdom. And it comes through the clarity of seeing from a stable mind, or observing, mindfully, from a stable mind over and over again. Well, when you get a glimpse, glimpses, as we do ongoingly in practice, oh, this is the way it is in the body, this is the way it is in the mind, oh, this is the nature of uh, fear, oh, this is the nature of my personality, this is the nature of impatience, this, this is the nature of everything. And we understand that. It's very inspiring. You want to practice more. You feel like, I'm getting it. And your faith is bolstered. You feel more confident. You feel more faithful. You want to make more effort. You want to observe more. You see more. You stabilize more. You understand more. And this is the cyclic path of the unfolding of wisdom. It's not like you've got to struggle at all. We just step by step follow our aspiration with whatever energy we have, learn to observe, stabilize the mind, understand what we can, let that support greater faith. It's hard to trust that this will happen automatically. You know, and it doesn't. Because we get we get out of balance. We make too much effort, or we get too con we like concentration, we get seduced by concentration, we just kind of sit in this kind of thousand yard gaze thinking that's it. Yeah. <laughs> or we, we struggle, you know, we, we, we just make too effort, too much effort, and we end up just gritting our teeth, enduring unnecessary pain, thinking that we're going to somehow crack the nut. Instead, we crack our own head. But by being mindful, we will recognize when we're out of balance when we've got too much concentration or too much energy or too much faith or too much wisdom or too little of any of them. And when you realize you're out of balance, mindfulness will make the adjustment. It will do it for you, really. But you do have to observe it. You do have to come to understand what balanced mind is. And these five factors, when they're brought into balance, wisdom and faith need to be brought into balance. Energy and concentration need to be brought into balance or maintained in balance. A lot of our practice is dealing with the imbalance of one of these pairs or the other. You know, we're trying too hard, we have to relax, more concentration. Or we have a lot of faith, you know, we just kind of believe and yeah, and we don't make any effort to realize for ourselves. Or we have a lot of wisdom, we read a lot of books, we know everything is supposed to happen, but we don't have any faith to practice to realize it for ourselves. So, it's really bringing these four factors into balance and mindfulness is the key because it is what notices we're out of balance. And with that recognition, mindfulness will bring us back into balance so that we can continue with this development of these factors. These five factors, when developed, brought into some mature, some mature level of development and balance is the activity of awareness. <clears throat> and it can take place, and it does take place, everywhere in our life. 
is not only in retreat, it's not only in sitting, but it operates at all times. How can you limit the awareness and the observing and the understanding of what's going on to just when your eyes are closed in a sitting posture? Cannot. It, it, it pervades our life. Of course, there's more recognition of it when we're paying more attention, as we often do on retreat. But nevertheless, this is the, uh, the journey of the development of the mind that results in our walking and realizing the spiritual goal, spiritual journey and the spiritual goal. Starts with faith, ends with wisdom, and not suffering. <clears throat> this is the journey we're on. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.